Hey, welcome to the Young Cooked Rice Show. Uh, today I'm with George Shaw. Uh, he's an American-born composer of who's had numerous sort of achievements in film, TV, games, and also new media. Uh, his music's well known across YouTube, and he some of his accomplishments have been including composing for Escape the Night, uh, Geek and Sundry shows, Tabletop, and Spellsinger. And I think uh, one of his so a few of his biggest accomplishments would be he is the creator of the Star Wars musical as well as he co-wrote Ode to Geeks with uh, Marvel Comics legend Stan Lee. George, welcome to the show. Hey, it's so great to be here. Uh, so first off, I have to start. Like, what was like, I can't go out without asking this first, but what was it like working with Stan Lee? <laughs> Stan was amazing. Uh, I mean, it was only a few years ago when I first met him. And I mean, he was in his 90s at that point. Right. And he was so witty. And just like his mind was so sharp, and just, I mean, I, I hope to be like that when I'm in my nineties. Um, just to have energy and vitality, and just you know, he woke up every day doing what he loved, which was writing, and I think that's what kept him going for so long. So I, I hope to do the same myself for the rest of my life. Um, so let's start off with a basically a few introductions. So I think. We want to get to know who George Shaw is. So why don't we start with sort of um, what was it like growing up for you? Because you were born in America, right? Yeah, I, you know, I grew up in Houston, Texas, um, you know, a, a place that was probably a predominantly white, but that didn't mean there weren't other Asians and other, you know, Chinese and Taiwanese American kids like myself. You know, I, I went to Chinese school mm-hmm. every Sunday um, and, and I sort of grew up thinking, um, you know, like, without realizing it, but that I wanted to be white, you know, that I wanted to, to not be different, to be treated like everyone else, and to have the same opportunities and, and everything. Um, so I was, you know, what they called a banana, which was white, <laughs> yellow on the outside, but white on the inside. And, you know, like, I was very whitewashed. Um, to, to me, there wasn't really an Asian American identity that I, I was aware of, mm-hmm. even though a lot of my friends who were also Asian American, like we were that identity um, of, you know, the melding of, of our parents' culture, you know, the, the immigrant culture as well as American culture. And so I, it really wasn't until, you know, college when I came out to California that I began to discover that Asian American identity and, and, finding like-minded people who are also being creative and, and pursuing the creative arts. Right. Yeah. And so uh, you mentioned that you sort of, you wanted to, you grew up sort of wanting to be like, I guess, white in a sense, yeah. but um, was that, dif- was it difficult fitting in with your community with people who sort of weren't, didn't look the same as you, that sort of thing? Um, in some ways, yes. Um, you know, I, I really, felt like, um, you know, that I could fit in with people because I was a nerd and, and all the pop culture that I loved was American. Right. And, you know, grew up with cartoons and, and movies of the 80s and 90s. So in a sense, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult because mm-hmm. I was as American as anyone else could be, you know, growing up here. Um, but at the, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, a lot of my closest friends were not white. Uh, you know, I got along with all the other kids in, in school, but, um, I wasn't 
always as part as much a part of the community and and you know part of this was because i didn't go to the the church that everyone went to and, and all that kind of stuff and so outside of school um you know i had kind of had my own life and and a lot of that is also part of my parents upbringing of of having to study and practice piano and then mm -hmm. practice clarinet and then uh spending my weekends either playing soccer or studying more <laughs> going to chinese school doing chinese school homework um, and then eventually um, youth symphony or like rehearsals and mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff so i you know I, I think in a way being so busy and and being pushed so hard by my parents that i really didn't have much of a life outside of school and, and everything else and and fortunately you know as a teenager in my high school years i i really built strong friendships with people through music through right. the people i was seeing at youth symphony or, uh, rehearsals and music camps and and all that kind of stuff so i eventually found a place for myself uh, which was fortunate and, and again why like to me music has been such uh, you know, an influence and inspiration in my life because it connects me with people. Right. And it, it, from what you've told me so far, like it sounds like music has been like a really big part of your life from, from a young age. Right. And I was wondering, cause you mentioned that your parents pushed you quite hard. Um, like did they push you towards music? Do you think, or was it that something that you found and your parents also happened to agree with it? <laughs> so they tried. Uh, I remember, I think I was probably six when they're like, you should take piano lessons as every Asian kid yeah. did <laughs> and probably still does. Uh, and so I, I remember looking at the piano and seeing all those keys and, and being at six years old, I was like, no way, I can't do that. Like that, there's so much, I, I don't even know how to comprehend doing that. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually scared of it. And so they kind of backed off and, um, but it was actually my best friend, uh, Carl, who, um, you know, we were, we went, went through uh, elementary school together and he was playing. And I remember this one day in like fourth grade and music class, he played Fear Elise by Beethoven. Right. And um, a classic. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> everyone has heard it at some point. And he basically, um, you know, performed in class. And I, I just, my ears just took to the melody and, it made me want to play that piece myself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I kind of on my own thought, Hey, I want to take piano lessons now. And so that's kind of how things began. And, and it, it was fortunate that it wasn't my parents forcing me to do it. It was of my own volition that, Oh, this interests me and I want to, you know, learn more about it. Right. right. Yeah. I, like, I think that's a good thing because uh, I like my parents forced me to take piano lessons <laughs> when I was young, uh, and like I, as much as I love piano and playing the like playing piano, um, sort of the lessons and like the pressure got to me, and I sort of quit a few years later down the road, which I still regret. But um, it's I'm like it's inspiring to hear that uh, you've managed to sort of find your way into music. Right, and and honestly, I, I didn't like practicing either. Yeah. I was not very consistent about it mm -hmm. uh, particularly early on and i was sort of fortunate that um 
well, in one, one regard, I actually got pretty good at sight reading because I would go to my piano lessons and sit with my piano teacher and just sort of read it. And I, yeah. I got good at that because I wasn't practicing just like memorizing notes. I was actually practicing how to read music and mm-hmm. sight read. So that skill is actually still useful to me today. Um, and it's because I didn't practice. So. And, and the other thing is I had a great piano teacher who was totally open to me bringing in music that I liked. So I was right. bringing in Disney's tunes and, you know, John Williams music from Schindler's List and Jurassic Park and, and all these movie scores that I love. Mm-hmm. And, she, and so for me, I wasn't just playing boring classical music that I didn't necessarily connect with. And, and actually, you know, I do love classical music but I had a greater love for storytelling and for, you know, the movies that were coming out that I was watching. And so that excited me about music was the, the soundtracks from those movies. And right. so I was able to bring those into my piano lessons. So, you know, for anyone out there that wants to be a music teacher or, um, or even if you're, you want your kids to, to learn uh, to music, like, be sure there's a, a good amount of music that they love because that will help kids, you know, stick with the music. Right. I, I completely agree with that. And um, on that note, sort of because you mentioned it, I remember I, in an interview a few years ago, you said sort of uh, you sort of compared film music today as sort of the classical music um, that's being written. And I was wondering if that, you know, philosophy still holds true for you today. I think so. You know, it's back in the days of Mozart, you know, you had to be the court composer to a king who would pay you to write music. Otherwise, it was not easy to make a living. Um, So today, I mean, where people getting paid to create music is primarily media. It's, It's film, TV, video games, uh youtube you know whatever it's that's that's sort of where people can make a living and be creative and i think that's a great thing and um your inspiration i'm from what i've heard is it sort of comes from like i guess being a nerd right from all the great uh, tvs the films like stuff like star wars and disney um i just wanted to ask sort of because of those influences, I'm assuming that's why you got into sort of composing for uh, new media and film, right? And TV and games. But I was wondering, was there a point in time where you just thought maybe, you know, um, this sort of music composing isn't where I want to go and sort of were there any other options that you were looking into? Pretty much from the time I was probably 16 or so, uh, I knew I wanted to be a composer and I think I wrote my first piece of music when I was 12 and it was just a little piano ditty that I showed my, my piano teacher and she encouraged me to keep doing it. And, and I entered some competitions and, and started winning things. I mean, there's not a lot of competition when you're like 12 or 13 at that mm-hmm. age for writing music. So, um, you know, it, it sort of encouraged me to keep going, but certainly, you know, I had a love of, of stories and storytelling long before I even discovered my love for music. You know, it really, yeah, even as a kid, I was waking up every Saturday morning, 7 a.m. on the dot with no alarm clock, just 
my natural body was just like, oh, it's time for cartoons, like Saturday morning cartoons. And so I'd be up and I'd be watching hours and hours of cartoons, um, you know, except when I had soccer games. But, uh, right. you know, that also translated to when, I mean, I was like, you know, I was definitely a loner kind of kid growing up, mm-hmm. but I loved reading books. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is there's a story I like to tell about how in first grade when we were first learning how to read um, and, and we would have these like reading charts where we would, you know, af- every time we re- read a book and these are like super easy kid books, like, you know, see spot run and stuff like that. And we would, you know, keep a log of all the books we read. And I think every five or 10 books, the teacher would give us a star. And so my mom told me if I read 300 books in first grade, she would buy me a Nintendo. And that really drove me. So I I definitely did that and got my Nintendo. And so you you can see already that my love for video games and for stories and reading like really started all the way back then. Um, And it continued to... Uh, you know, I, at one point in middle school, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write novels because I love reading uh, a lot of like fiction, mystery kind of stuff like Hardy Boys and uh, Goosebumps and, uh, you know, all kinds of things. And and so I, I actually became an entertainment editor for the school newspaper. And I was writing movie reviews. So definitely this love of video games, reading, storytelling, uh, writing, and um, movies, TV, like that was all kind of where I found my passion. And then when I discovered music and writing melodies and how you could tell a story with melody, those things all combined. And by 16, I was like, I have to be a film composer. (laughs) And I haven't looked back since. Yeah, that's really sort of admirable to hear. But I was also wondering, because um, as we all know, there's this sort of unspoken, but most of the time it's pretty outright, outrightly spoken. Like there's this pressure where sort of Asian parents want us want their kids to be sort of, uh, to find a stable job, right? Either doctor, lawyer, engineer. And I was wondering, like, did your parents uh, sort of, were they hesitant when you sort of told them that this is what you wanted to do growing up? <laughs> Absolutely. They... <laughs> I mean, they were hesitant up until I think about five years ago (laughs) because, yeah, and I understand like they, you know, had to struggle with being immigrants and sort of giving everything up to come to a country where they had to learn the language and, um, you know, and, and, and sort of making that sacrifice so that their kids could have a better life than they did. And so, yeah, I think a lot of immigrant parents, and and in a large part because they they haven't seen uh, people doing that in -hmm. their communities because everyone who's an immigrant, well, you're you're not going to get a lot of opportunities um, unless you like my parents are like highly skilled and had master degrees and, and uh, because of that, they were able to immigrate and, and get jobs here. So, you know, I think, you know, they didn't grow up seeing 
their friends or family pursuing, you know, creative arts. Even though I, I actually had an aunt who actually studied op opera, like classical singing, and but you know, she actually never really did that full time. So I think even that sort of gives them the sense of, oh, it's it's useless to spend time and money pursuing arts, except <laughs> except for the fact that it looks good on your college application, right? Yeah. So that that's why you know everyone wants you to every every immigrant parents wants you to to learn piano or some instrument for the the resume, but not to pursue it professionally. Right. So I was fortunate that nothing was going to stop me from that. And, you know, when people ask me for advice, it's like, you know, if you want to be a musician or, you know, go into arts, don't do it. Because um, if you're going to do it, there's nothing's going to stop you. And so, but you have to have that kind of drive to even, you know, take the, the sacrifice of all that struggle and rejection that you're going to have to face. Right. So, um, you know, I was very much, even, you know, in my twenties, my mom would always say, you know, you're always, you always got great, you know, math scores and grades and you could always go back to grad school and, you know, study engineering or something. And, um, and, and it finally stopped when I, I did a movie called Baby Steps, which was uh, theatrically released in Taiwan and Singapore and, and you know, went to some, some festivals uh, in, in the States. And that particular uh, film was produced by uh, one of Ang Lee's producers. Okay. Yeah. Uh, who produced his, his uh, early Taiwan movies as well as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, his name is Shirley Gong. So a very well-known Taiwanese producer who's basically, I, I guess, retired by now. But Ang Lee was my mom's favorite filmmaker. And mm -hmm. she like read his bio and everything and, and, and just loved his movies. And because I worked with his producer, suddenly I had made it in my mom's eyes that, <laughs> you know, somehow that helped. And so she kind of stopped or maybe just figured that this was the thing I was going to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. And you mentioned this earlier while you were explaining it to me, but um, sort of, you're right. Like not a lot of Asian parents sort of see their kids going into this sort of industry. Right. And I think not a lot of Asians are in this industry where they're composing music for film, for media. And I was wondering, was it hard for you to get into sort of like the pace and the sort of style of it? You know, I was lucky that, and maybe this was me growing up as a banana, that I never thought of uh, the fact that there weren't Asians in Hollywood. <laughs> I was sort of naive in thinking, uh, you know, this is what I love. I'm, I'm good at it. I have talent. Like, nothing's going to stop me. Um, and, you know, I think after a number of years of being in the industry and, and getting to know a lot of other Asian-American creatives and just seeing now I've actually been in long enough, you know, for 16 years to see the trajectory of these people's careers and, and my own career. Um, I do now realize that um, there aren't enough of us doing it. And particularly in, in film and TV composing, right. um, you know, sort of 
uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I got into the Universal Composers Initiative, which is sadly, but also, you know, good for me, like the, the first and only diversity, you know, talent kind of initiative in the industry for composers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot for writers and directors and actors even. But only two years ago did this even start in the composing industry. Um, and at the same time, I met Matt Michael Abels, who is Jordan Peele's composer on uh, Get Out and Us. And he was just starting the Composers Diversity Collective. And so I got involved with that. And, and at around the same time, I, I began to realize, oh, wait, never in my life have I ever seen an Asian American composer have sole composer credit on a you know, major studio Hollywood film. Mm-hmm. Never has there even been, and even to this day, I don't think there has been one. I mean, there have been ones who, you know, done foreign films or indie films, uh, you know, certainly a little bit in TV and uh, video games, but never at, on a studio film here in Hollywood. Right. It still hasn't happened. (laughs) So, although someone did tell me there was a guy who did some Steven Seagal movies in the nineties or something, but as far as I know, I haven't seen an Asian name (laughs) on the big screen in the theater aside from you know working on a team of a, a composer like doing mm-hmm. digital music or something like that um so yeah I, I i think you know that is only going to change when we see more writers directors and producers creating our own stories and having opportunities to to be in those positions of power where they can hire a composer right um so you know you know a lot of my friends who are working in this industry, they're not at a high enough level to hire me. So, you know, as everyone says, it's all about who you know, but everyone that I know is, you know, they're starting out, they're, they're finally getting opportunities as TV writers, you know, as a staff writer or a TV director. But, you know, those are big teams of people who are not at the very top where they can actually hire someone like me. So. Um, it's certainly a, a long fought and difficult battle. It's an uphill battle for, for people like me who are uh, composing. But at the same time, if, if you love it, then, you know, for me, there's nothing's going to stop me. So I'm just going to keep going until I eventually get a shot at, at doing bigger things. And hopefully that will come soon. And like, if, it's good that you mentioned that because um, like for me, I, I tend to watch a lot of TV shows uh, from time to time and films as well. Like it's been a big part of uh, my childhood and like we're seeing more representation coming on screen in the actors, right? And I think a lot of it has to do, and I think a lot of people forget that a lot of it has to come from the writing, right? Um, where, exactly. Um, if you don't have a diverse cast of writers, it's often hard to find a diverse sort of cast of actors in your, in the show or in the film or in media. Right. I think, would you say that it has to take a sort of, it has to take one step at a time where we address this, or would you say that it just all has to sort of be more inclusive, more represented? I mean, why not do both? Right. You know, obviously change takes time to happen because you're not going to just, you know, fire half of Hollywood just to open up opportunities for everyone else. Right. Um, 
but but yeah, the studios, and we're starting to see a little bit more now with um, with particularly with the streamers like Netflix and Amazon. They are actively looking for, and in a large part because they have a much more global uh, audience. You know, because they are streaming in all these countries, mm-hmm. and so they're not thinking about you know, creating products exclusively for an American audience or, or you know, in this, the sense of the big blockbusters of just having a big, big movie with big recognizable stars um, in order to have an international hit. So um, there's more opportunities for smaller stories that can be told for a little more diversity. Um, and... Where was I going with this? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it really has to happen at every step of the way. You know, the, the studios need to start hiring more people. Um, but but also, I think we need audiences to support what we're creating. So right. if you're Asian-American or if you want to see more Asian-American content, um, you know, spending your dollars, buying tickets, or you know, or even... You know, if you're subscribing to Netflix or something, look for those Asian American filmmakers. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff out there that um, might take a little bit of, of looking to find, but but it's out there. Right. And yeah, on like on that note as well, like I was wondering, sort of currently, what's what are the favorite, what are your favorite shows that sort of, uh, sort of have these accurate representations? I'm not sure if you can think of any on the top of your head, but. Uh, something curious. very recent that I've been watching was Never Have I Ever. That's the new Mindy Kaling show right. on Netflix. It's really funny. It's it's a fun show, and and I actually just had the opportunity opportunity to write a, my first pop song. Okay, which uh, which was sort of inspired by that show. I used that to kind of come up with the idea for the, the song. So um, that was really cool. Uh, what else? I mean. I'm not a Babysitter's Club fan, but my wife has been watching that, <laughs> and, she, and she's loving the 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 girl playing uh, Claudia Kishi, I think mm-hmm. is her name. Jeez, uh, there's so many shows. I mean, one of my favorite shows was Fresh Off the Boat, right? Because that was literally like Eddie Huang, who is a year younger than me. Like his, particularly the first season of the show that that was my childhood growing up in the '90s of being Taiwanese American, you know, in, in America. So, um, but you know, there's, there's a lot of great, sh- Oh, one of my favorite shows now is, um, Kim's convenience. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so where I wanted to go with this was essentially with all these shows that sort of, um, have these representations. I wondering, I was wondering like, does it ever influence you in a way while you're composing music? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I've, I mean, yes and no. Uh, there's obviously times when I hear things and go, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'll think about approaching something like that. But it's not something that I actively think, oh, this is so similar to the scene from this show. Like, I'm going to do it the way they did it. You know, right. it doesn't happen quite that way. Um, but certainly, I think, you know, when a show 
resonates with me as just as a person. And, and this is what I found when I first discovered Wong Fu Productions, uh, very prominent Asian American YouTubers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually met them before YouTube was really a thing or, or it was just starting out. And, and I remember seeing a short that they did that, you know, quote unquote, went viral before viral was a thing. Because <laughs> this was back in the days when you had to go to their website and like download a video. Like we didn't right. have streaming video yet. This was probably like 2005 or six. Um, and it was a, a, a little short called Yellow Fever. It was just about like a white guy dating Asian girl. It was mm-hmm. a very humorous take on that. Yeah. And, um, and they were just, you know, making this as students at, at UCSD. And I just was, I felt connected to it because it was like, oh, this is about a guy who's like me, you know, Asian American guy. I hadn't seen that really at that point in film or TV. And so, I, you know, I was able to run into them at the film festival and say, oh, I love your stuff. Like, I'd love to work with you guys. And fortunately, we've worked on a number of things over the last probably 13 years. Um, so yeah, when, when I meet filmmakers that are creating stories like that, that I connect with, like it, it sort of, it just feels great to be a part of that mm-hmm. and to, to get to write music for that. And I wanted to ask you, since you brought it up, um, sort of when you are, cause I, I assume that sometimes you have to choose, uh, what projects to be involved in, what not to be, right. I was wondering like when it comes to deciding, uh, what projects you want to sort of work on, do you have a preference whether uh, there's a project that you know could really help you financially or versus a product that a project that you know is something that you really would think you would be proud working on uh it's it's actually both um and and perhaps that's one reason why i'm sort of always overwhelmed and always busy mm-hmm. is that i I, I can't say no to the things that will pay the bills and I can't say no to things that will fulfill me artistically. And so I say yes to a lot of things. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, that's, that's how I've sort of stayed busy and, and built a career over the last 16 years. And so I wanted to uh, pivot the conversation a bit. So, uh, from what you told me, you're a part of the Composers Diversity Collective, right? Yeah, um, Could you tell us a bit about what the work that you guys do? At- Absolutely. Yeah, we basically, I mean, I, I think it's important to, to build community and, and whatever you're doing, right? So the fact that, um, and we actually, we actually crunched the numbers uh, in the top, you know, film and TV projects in 2016 and 2017, the the numbers were something like 80 to 90 percent of all the composing work being done was being done by uh, Caucasian men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can see that there's so little diversity, and, and we felt the need to, you know, create a safe space to connect with uh, with fellow composers who were. Uh, you know, had different backgrounds and, and, and the, the thing that I actually love about the group is we get along so well. We've all been in the same situation. We've all been in those rooms where we're the only person of color. Um, you know, we've 
all struggled to to find opportunities in this industry and so we felt that it was important to not only create a community but to also say to the industry that hey we're here uh, we are ready to to be hired um, and there's no there's no excuse because you know a lot of times they'll say oh we wanted to hire a person of color but we didn't know of any no we couldn't find any you mm-hmm. know and yeah that's a lot of part of the the systemic problem of of you know keeping people out and having gatekeepers and, and not allowing opportunities for new talent you know because you know no one wants to risk uh, you know, their $100 million movie on someone who's never done it before. Right? Right. They want someone with a track record. But if you're not allowing people in, that's kind of a problem, you know, because then you're just always hiring the same people over and over. And so, you know, we wanted to also have a database to say there's no excuse to not be able to find a person of color to, to write music. So that that is another big part of what we're doing, um, and at the same time, we're um, starting to do webinars and things to to just educate people to help help our members out in their careers and, and sort of set them up for success. So yeah, I, I think it's incredibly important that we have this organization. Although it would have been nice if we had a few years earlier, you know. Yeah, I think it's really it's a really great like sort of an initiative because um like as you said previously there there's not a lot of sort of diversity in the industry right so having this sort of initiative and this collective to help uh, sort of support that um would it would really help the industry sort of become more diverse having shows and films become more representative right yeah and and you know i'm i'm on the uh social media team so i'm actually running the the social media for for the composers diversity collective and yeah, we're just trying to like shout out to the world, like all the successes that our composers are having. So, so saying that we have talent, we mm-hmm. need to be heard. So right. I, I think it's very important to, to be doing that. And I was just wondering as well, sort of, because with all your experience, uh, I think you said 16 years previously, you sort of, how can we as just sort of regular day people sort of, how can we sort of support this uh, initiative, like how can we continue to support diversity in film and media? That is a great question. Um, you know, the, the main thing is that, like we said before, that we need more storytellers to have opportunities. So like I said before, you know, go out and watch Asian American film and TV projects, you know, right. the, the data, you know, Netflix and Amazon, they're, they're collecting the data on what gets seen and, and that influences where they're going to spend their money. So obviously that's the, the easy way. Um, another thing is to, you know, we can support um, people of color who are making music mm-hmm. either just by listening to their work on Spotify or, you know, wherever um, because that generates royalties and that helps, helps, you know, pay the bills. Um, we are, we've actually created a, Composers Diversity Spotify playlist. Okay. So, uh, in fact, I should probably post that soon on, on our social media. So, so you can find us on uh, at. Uh, oh gosh, I even <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I don't recall the exact uh, screen name, but it's I think it's C 
CD composer, I want to say. Uh, but yeah, you, you can obviously look up, uh, I think on Instagram it's just Composers Diversity Collective. Okay. And then something else on Twitter. But yeah, look us up. Like I'll, I'll definitely be posting that. Um, I think you can also just search Spotify for Composers mm-hmm. Diversity Collective and find that playlist. So, so that's another, another way to, to help support. And so like, this is something that you've been working on as well, but I was wondering during quarantine, have you been working on any other projects? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the thing about what I do is I've always worked from home. So when the quarantine happened, not a lot changed for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the thing that sucked was suddenly I was unemployed because there weren't a lot of projects happening and there's just kind of this weird lull between right. things. And I knew I had things that were coming up that ended up not shooting so then all of a sudden those there was a gap for me uh, in terms of work but i've always had a lot of personal passion projects that and like i said like i don't say no to a lot of things so i've i've kept very busy over the years and suddenly i had time to work on my own things right so i've been working on a couple of albums one is a uh, album of star wars lullabies and okay. I'm really excited for that. I'm almost done with it. So hopefully I'll release it in August or September. Mm-hmm. And it's just something that was fun and relaxing too. I mean, it's good to have some lullabies to work on to just relax when things are stressful. Right. Um, and, you know, working every day, that, that keeps me sane. That keeps me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I also finished a 13-year project, which was so so good to get that off my plate it's a indiana jones fan film right it's called treasure of the templars um basically uh, just a group of guys who were indiana jones fans set out to make a feature length fan film which when you think about it is pretty crazy (laughs) and they shot all over the world too like in california and ireland and Mm -hmm. some other places so the footage looks beautiful um but made with no budget purely on passion and and there was a lot of visual effects that had to be done so it's they've been working on it off and on for 13 years trying to finish all these visual effects and i think it's one or two people doing it so you can imagine when you're trying to work full time and only doing this on the weekends or something it can take a long time yeah uh so and and even for me like i only had so much time to work on it myself so i finally had the time to to finish the final scenes of of that movie um, I've also been writing a, a musical web series because I've I've always wanted to write musicals and mm-hmm. and it's been hard to kind of do. I, I did a little bit with the the Star Wars musical that you mentioned before and Netflix musical, but those are both parodies. Whereas taking existing music and changing the lyrics and arranging it and, and all that. Um, but yeah, I've been wanting to write more original musicals, so I finally had the chance to start doing that. Uh, I don't know when I'll release that. But the idea was to to take that story that we all heard about uh, in New York at the beginning of the quarantine where this guy used a drone to get the phone number of this quarantine cutie who was on on the, uh, uh, I guess, rooftop opposite from his building. Um, so I thought, you know, like, what is dating going to be like during a quarantine? So I, I wanted to write a musical about that. And, and also it, it's designed to be kind of based around um, 
I guess, uh, FaceTime chats and, and Zoom like dating like right, through yeah. the screen so that our actors could easily kind of film themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I've been working on that and also doing a little bit of animation work, which is kind of the only work <laughs> that seems to be happening right now. Uh, so yeah, I've been staying very busy. Well, that's good to hear. Um, and so you like, it's pretty obvious that a lot of your influences have uh, been sort of in film. And I think I was wondering, have you had the chance to meet John Williams? I have met him twice. Uh, the first time was in college. Came to conduct the USC Symphony for. Uh, there's something happening at the film school where they're, um, I guess, naming chairs in the name of people who worked with Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was his cinematographer or some something like that. Uh, but John Williams came to conduct, um, and I just showed up early to wait for him to show up and just got to like say hi to him and, and get a photo with him. Uh, the other time I met him was I was volunteering for a Society of Composers and Lyricists Oscar reception, and he was nominated that year. Mm-hmm. And so I was just checking people in as they were coming and going and giving gift bags as they were leaving. and and. Uh, Mr. Williams strolled on out pretty early. He's one of the first people to leave the party, which I don't blame him because <laughs> he's, he's been to so many of these. And he just walked by and I like ran after him to give him the gift bag. And and he was just very kind and gracious. And so those are my two, two times I've actually gotten to meet him in person. And so um, for many industries, like it's sort of, I wouldn't say it, it's sort of difficult to sort of get into the habit of sort of careers without having a mentor. And I was wondering, did you have a lot of mentors sort of uh, when you started off in your journey into this industry? Uh, you know, I, I was a very independent person and I've always like, you know, and the way the things work in our industry is that, um, you know, most mentorships happen when you are working for someone. So a lot of it is comes from working as an assistant. Right. And when I started out, I I didn't feel confident in my technical abilities to to be an assistant to to deal with uh, hardware issues and software and installing things and, and making things run in a studio. Mm-hmm. Like I just I didn't even know how to do that. So I didn't go that route. Um, and yeah, I probably missed out on on like really great mentoring opportunities i did have uh, you know a few opportunities where i was in the film independent project involved program and through that i was able to be paired up with christopher lennertz who is an amazing composer uh i mean he's done so many amazing tv shows video games and movies i think recently he's done like horrible bosses and ride along and um just at sausage party <laughs> and he's he did the agent carter uh marvel tv show and right. uh, supernatural and so many things like, he's an incredible composer he's he's actually very much someone that i look up to um so i was able to actually be mentored him by him for a year uh he gave me a lot of great advice but when i think back i'm like uh that's great advice if you're if you're a white guy <laughs> you know like, I mean, I mean, not that the advice doesn't pertain to myself, but there's 
additional hurdles for for me that you know if i could mentor my if i had a time machine i could go mentor myself then mm-hmm. i would maybe bring up some other things um but um you know i've done a lot i've come a long way kind of on my own um, right. and, and i'm very thankful for you know the community of all the um, creatives that i get to work with um, they've all been great and we support each other um, but more recently in the Universal Composers Initiative, I've been mentored by studio executives at Universal Studios and DreamWorks Animation. And, and that has opened so many doors. I, I, can't, I can't say how grateful I am to that um, and, and just the connections I've made through that. So, and, and in fact, they're starting soon to take applications for the next next round of composers for their next uh iteration so certainly to any composers out there that want to apply you should definitely look into the universal composers initiative and so you said that you were sort of more independent early on and i was wondering like looking back now like what were some of the biggest lessons that you think you've learned i've definitely learned that so much in this industry you know, it really requires someone else to trust you to open doors for you. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe less so if you're a writer because you can create your own material and that can sometimes be the catalyst for uh, career opportunities. Uh, but for you know, someone like me who's a composer, you know, we rely on filmmakers and showrunners of TV shows to hire us. So, you know, that, that in itself uh, requires you to really get to know people, um, to get to know the right people, which is certainly not an easy thing. It's almost like winning the lottery when you meet the right person who is successful and can bring a composer along on along their career. Um, but you know, the other way that ha- it happens is is through being an assistant to another composer, and so that is something that I've seen has helped a lot of other composer friends of mine like really do well in their careers so certainly i would i wish i could actually go back in time and tell myself to to do that um for you personally do you have any sort of advice to give to you know these young generation z asians who might be looking to get into the music composing industry or just any artistic or creative industry yeah the 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 number one thing is just to do it i mean you're only going to get good by failing and then learning from your failures. So the first thing to do is just start doing it. Um, the next thing I would say is learn as much as you can about your craft, but not just your craft because, uh, you know, in, in composing, you could be a great composer, but if you're not a good people person, you can't deal with technology and business and networking. And a lot of it is just, dealing with the psychology of different personalities mm-hmm. uh just being being someone who can work with people like there's so much that i had to learn um after college because they don't teach you these things um so i'm always even now like learning from master class and from youtube tutorials and reading books and listening to podcasts so i mean i certainly recommend learning about people and networking uh learning about even personal finance you know just to know how to deal with business and money um 
and you know obviously technology and the tools that you use in your trade and and also just yeah like learning your craft learning studying the works of masters and learning from them and you know developing a point of view and, and a voice a creative voice so there is certainly it, it's endless i mean every day i'm probably watching or listening to something to learn something new that's true and so george if any of our viewers wanted to sort of uh look you up where could they find you on the internet uh yeah it's easy i'm george shaw music on most social media uh and my website is also george shaw music.com that's g-e-o-r-g-e-s-h-a-w music and so at the very least, just Google George Shaw music or George Shaw composer and you'll find me. All right, perfect. Thank you for your time, George. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great to, to chat with you.